God, we thank you for your word that um, makes us wise. And we thank you for even what it teaches about wisdom, that man thinks he's wise in his own eyes, but uh, the greatest wisdom of man is nothing but foolishness compared to what you've revealed in your word. And so I pray that we would look to this book to understand what's good, what's right, what's true, what's beautiful, and that it would be more than mere mental or cognitive understanding, but it would be transformational, that it would shape what we actually do in the lives that we actually live. And, and Lord, we do pray for this world. Like People need this wisdom. They need the gospel. And so we pray that you would humble men's hearts and by your kindness lead them to repentance and change them, rescue them from the destruction that they are heading towards. Um, yeah, just bless our time as we look at your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Mark chapter 4. Man, I actually started looking at this. We're going to pick up in verse 21. I actually started looking at this a couple weeks ago, and it's been kind of bouncing around in my head since then. I'm excited to consider this. So starting in verse 1, or 21, sorry, of Mark chapter 4, it says, And Jesus said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Okay, I do think that there is, um, I don't know, one of the things that's kind of interesting is like trying to figure out how do these different sections connect to one another when you're reading scripture. A lot of times we get interrupted from that by the headings, the section headings that are put in there. And I think um, probably the connection is a seed, its purpose is to go into soil. A lamp, its purpose is to go where it creates light. Okay, I don't know that there's much more connection than that. Um, but I think that's kind of how I would bring these two sections together, this, the parable of the seed and then the lamp under a basket. So I love Jesus' argument in verse 21. And I mentioned this in my sermon, maybe it was last week or a couple of weeks ago, I don't remember. This idea that some things are self-evident. It is self-evident that you put a lamp on a, in a place where it can create light for the room. Otherwise... It has no purpose. So it's self-evident that a lamp goes on a stand and not under a basket. Um, I don't know why these self-evidential truths or realities are so hard for our world to understand right now. Um, but I think one of the things we're seeing culturally is the suppression of self-evident, self-evidential truth. Anybody else have any other examples of that? Yeah, right? Absolutely. That's a good one. And I even, I even maybe too crudely posted even that on Facebook. Like, it is self-evidentially good where these things go 
and how they work together. Um, that's obvious. Um, you know, it, it, it is self-evidential that men and women are different and that this attempt to like obscure any difference in sex or gender is, is absurd. Um, yeah, I, I think another one is like, it's self-evident that if you don't punish crime, then you get more of it, right? I don't know why that's a difficult concept for our culture to understand, but um, it's an important one. Any other self-evidential truths that are being suppressed? Yes. That a, that a so this was so fascinating for me to learn, and I don't know if I already mentioned this, but um, it is illegal to destroy turtle eggs in the United States. Particular species. Did I already bring this up? No? Okay. Why is that? Well, because it's self-evident that a fertilized egg is that creature just not fully matured yet, right? And yet, we wouldn't apply that same reason to a fertilized egg in a woman's womb. How crazy is that? Unless the mother wants it. Right. And then you then. hook for it if you accidentally kill it. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Isn't that crazy? Although there are places like New York has recently removed the statute that if you kill a pregnant woman, it's a double homicide. Oh, wow. So now if you, kill a if you kill a pregnant woman, mm -hmm. there's only one murder charge. Which recently there was a pregnant woman who was murdered and the family was outraged because they wanted the baby. But the statute had been entirely removed. So even though they wanted the child, the guy was only charged with one homicide. And then he was probably let out on $50 bail within 48 hours because well, that's... Pretty, sorry, pretty soon it's going to be cheaper if you're like a, uh, the dad in the relationship, the father relationship, but she doesn't want to marry you or whatever, to pay all the money for your stuff for 18 years and never have any rights or just kill her. Get off for probably two years for murder these days, yeah, and not have the baby. Yeah. That, that's how he'll live aboard babies because yeah. we're being so soft on crime and everything else. Yeah, it's it's a fair point, man. These these are things that like ten years ago we would have been like no way, never, and now it's it's coming true. Um, you know, or another one that's self evident is like, you know, they're they're decriminalizing drugs in some of these places. Well. They think that it will be better for people, but no, now there's more deaths from drug overdoses. Silly stuff. Okay. Yeah, it, it is, it is. Some people just want to destroy things. Um, okay, so look, I, I think this is really cool because Jesus uses self-evidential arguments to help people see things more clearly. Um, it's not always effective because people are willfully blind and God also blinds them and they choose to be deceived, but I think it's interesting that in sort of arguing, Jesus uses some of these self-evidential arguments from time to time. Um, it just shows that our faith is not, it's not contrary to reason, it's not blind faith, it's very reasonable, and it can be argued from very reasonable positions, in addition to Scripture, obviously. And this is, Scripture is the ultimate authority, but you're not going to find anything in Scripture that is contrary to reason, because God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. Okay, so I think um, looking at verse 22, I think the connection is truth is to be spoken openly, not hidden away. 
Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. And that's terrifying because if you suppress the truth, and, and let's take it another step. If you suppress the truth of who you are in your actions and you don't allow that to be perceived, well, you're not getting away with anything. At some point it is going to be exposed, right? Even if it's only at the end of all things when you're called to account for all of your thoughts and all of your actions. Um, but truth is to be spoken openly. It's not to be hidden away. Um, but there is something interesting about this because not too long ago we looked at Jesus saying these things are hidden, right? It's in this same chapter, uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 10 or 11. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive, it may indeed hear but not understand. Well, it kind of made me think of like, a lamp can have a screen over it or a shade over it, right? That veils the light, and yet it's still perceptible. Does that make sense? Jesus is giving this truth, but he's giving it in ways that are veiled. It is still, the light of it is still perceivable, but it is, it's got this shade over it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the light still shines for people to see, but the lamp itself is obscured. And then a little bit more on verse 22. What is hidden now will come to be revealed. What is secret will one day be known. All eventually will be exposed. That's kind of a terrifying thought, isn't it? <clears throat> like even the motives of our heart. Even the motives of our heart that are sometimes even imperceptible to ourselves. Like one day we'll have to see those things. But you do it now by letting the word... Yeah, but like, I, I, I don't know that in this fallen state, we get like 100% clarity. Like, I, I, do, I do think that the more we submit ourselves to the word, the more that we walk in step with the spirit, the more that we surround ourselves with the fellowship of believers, we become more self-aware, but I'm not entirely sure that like, we totally get the motivation of our heart. I don't know. Um, God does know. That's right. And thankfully, he's merciful in that knowing. Yeah, but sometimes when, when, when we really think about it, it, sometimes we really don't know ourselves. But there is a little small voice like, I know you, I know you. There is like, I know God knows me well, more than I know myself. Yeah. So. Yeah, and, and we do, I think, touch on concepts like this, like in, in Romans 7, right? I don't understand the things that I do, the things I want to do, I don't do. You know, just getting down to, like, the heart. Or, or even the... Is it, in that case, he knows he's doing wrong. See, I'm, I'm convinced we know a lot of stuff we're doing, and we're suppressing the truth, we're, we're wanting to do it anyways. But I don't think God's, like, ready to just crush us about innocent things that we don't know that we're wrong. See what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I don't think God is going to crush us for the innocent things that we do wrong. I'm trying to think about how that relates to like the first couple chapters of Romans. They suppress the truth and unrighteous, although they can see. Yeah, but it also says that those like who are under the law will die by the law. But but the but the the Gentiles are a law to themselves because they don't know. 
But but it's not implying they don't know the Jewish law. They have the law written on their hearts. So they're doing the law because it's written on their hearts. Well, here here's the verse that I was kind of thinking of. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. But they're breaking the law by not believing in Christ. Like, okay. Right? I mean, sure. that's why they're condemned, because they know there's a God and they're, they're not submitting to But I think what I hear him saying in that verse is um, that, like, look, the law is helpful for exposing sin, but just because you don't have the law doesn't mean you have an excuse for sin. Do you think that that's a fair Same. part of So, um, shoot, how did I say that? I have to go back to the recording. The, the, uh, the purpose of the law is to expose sin. But if you sin apart from the law, that's not an excuse for your sin. Yeah. No, but in Romans 1, I'm convinced what he's saying is um, the, the Jews have a law. He's talking about two, he's talking about the believing Gentiles, not the unbelieving Gentiles. At this point, when he says they have a law, he's saying they understand the law. They're following Jesus based on what they know. The Holy Spirit has given them to do. Is kind of you think in that chapter he's he's using the word law, the law of Christ? No, I'm saying the the Jews think they're trying to hold up the old covenant law, and Jesus and um, yeah, and he's saying, look, the Gentiles are obeying God. Just without the old covenant law, they're doing what God requires now, which is not every human being had to keep the Sabbath. Right, right. And the Jews did, and God was not holding them contempt for not keeping the law that they didn't know about. Got it. Okay. That's not, I mean, that's how I see it, but I mean, I think there's probably, we could spend more time nuancing it out. But. Yeah, well, I'm, I've been like reading and rereading Romans, so I've not read it like with that lens, and so I'm, I'll be interested to do that. Um, I don't remember honestly how we ended up kind of down yeah. this <laughs> this rabbit trail, which is fine. It's interesting. Probably. What's that? Is it like this whole self-evident? Something about the motivation of the heart, I think, is yeah, what it was. Yeah, it's about the heart. It's about yeah. Um, look, and, and whatever the case is, the truth is that it will be exposed, right? I mean, verse twenty-two: nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. I think man has this self-deceived view that he's getting away with these things. And, and oftentimes in life, he does, right? That's one of the themes that we encounter through like uh, Psalms is like, why do the wicked prosper? Why do they manage to get away with these things? A man thinks he is, but he's not, you know? I think that's kind of what I'm trying to go at is yeah. saying, look, the things that are going to be laid bare is what you know you're hiding. Not the stuff like God sure. be like, dude, you totally messed up when you were talking. And I'm like, I had no idea. I right. really didn't. I right. don't think he's going, well, you still did it, and I'm, I'm nailing you for this. Yeah. No, that's good. And Paul even actually deals with that. I don't know why I can't think of the passage right now where he says, God was gracious to me because I did what I did in ignorance. Yes. I think it might be yeah. First Thessalonians where he talks about that. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's a really good point. It is the stuff that we think that we're getting away with. It's going to be revealed, and there will be kind of consequences for that. So verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. I mean, I think people hear, they just don't care. I think if they cared, they would turn and repent. So if we go back to verse 12, right, we referenced it already, but they may indeed see but not perceive. They may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. 
They see, but they don't perceive. They hear, but they don't understand. What reason could there be for that? I mean, I think the Bible does give us a few reasons. God blinds them, but also they choose to be blind, and they just, they just don't care. I mean, there's, there's, I think there's some pretty good evidence in the Gospels that the Pharisees generally knew that Jesus was the Messiah. But they hated him because they saw him taking away their power. Or they're jealous. Like there are some times where it says, Jesus tells this parable and afterward it says, and they perceived that he was talking about them and they set out to go murder him. Right? They, they put the plot together to kill him. I'm not saying that there's not that, but I mean, you, you look at you look at Paul, you wouldn't say that before Paul became, before you know, Christ saved him. I mean, he was ardent persecutor like we were talking about, right? I mean, and I, I wouldn't say that about Paul. I think he was genuine, believing he was doing God's work. And I believe there was probably those guys that were hardened hearted, you know, and there, there might have been the, you know, Pharisees that were that way, that knew that he was the Christ and were, were suppressing that or, yeah. or, you know what I mean? But I do think that there was probably a good lot of them that yeah. thought they were doing God's work and, you know, whether they were doing it righteously or, or unrighteously, you know, they yeah, it's true. You probably have kind of an amalgamation of both of those things in there. Um, but this is why you get the verse, uh, the, the uh, verse 24 then. Uh, pay attention to what you hear. Verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Don't hear these things and not pay attention. Jesus says, pay attention to what you hear. Don't be like these people who hear but don't understand or who hear and choose not to do it. Again, going back to Matthew 7, which I think we referenced last week, Jesus says, if you hear these words of mine and you do them, then you're like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. If you hear these words of mine and you don't do them, you're like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. Any other thoughts on any of that? Okay, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. Um, you know, this, this is an echo of, maybe we should just turn there. This is an echo of Matthew, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Judging righteously. Yes. And... Um, I mean, in many ways, there's a lot of overlap here, but, you know, Matthew chapter 7, judge not, that you be not judged. Yeah, because for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You know, when I read that, I don't find myself afraid of judging others in the same way that I judge myself. What I mean by that is, the problem that we often make is we make judgments where it's like, I'm going to compare myself to you. I'm going to judge you according to me and my standard. Okay? If we do that, I think we're in big trouble because yeah. we're all condemned. Mm-hmm. Right? But if we say, I'm going to judge you according to God's standard, then I think we're in safe territory. Right? I'm, and, and I'm judging myself based on that same criteria. I'm going to apply to you the same biblical measurement that I applied to myself. I don't think scripture anywhere prohibits that. In fact, I think scripture encourages that repeatedly. Okay? And you are comparing it to yourself. 
What do you mean? Well, if you're saying, if I'm going to judge you because you're aborting the baby, then if I go and abort a baby, then I'm judged with the same measurement. But I think I should be judging that, and I think everybody should be judging God's thing. But you should just be careful if you're committing the same sin. That's when you're in danger. Yes, yes. Yeah. But what, what I'm saying is, um, I'm not going to judge you on how you love your wife by looking at me and how I love my wife. I'm going to apply to you the same judgment that I would apply myself from the text of Scripture, right? From Ephesians. Um, that, that's what I'm talking about, right? So I'm not looking at the, the a person who commits abortion and saying, you shouldn't do that because I don't do that. I'm looking at them and saying, you shouldn't do that because God has made very clear in his word that he is the giver of life. That's his realm of authority. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. And so certainly then, if I'm guilty of the sin, then I should be way less concerned about your position and I should be concerned about my own before God, right? Which brings humility rather than pride because I don't think I'm the standard by which everybody should be judged. Um, but I do think that, you know, I also read this verse, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. I think verses like that make me kind of want to default to grace. Although actually the older I get, the more I slide towards, um, I don't know, what would be the opposite of grace? Obedience, I guess, maybe? Those aren't opposites. I don't know what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say that, that um, well, where would I be apart from grace? Right, I, I, would, be, I would be a mess. So I just want to recognize that in the way that I'm interacting with other people is that it's grace that's brought me here. It's grace that sustains me, and I would love for other people to receive that same kind of grace. So, in this particular one, is more about you want to get the more. Not from, like the other one, when you go into the judgment one, it's like you don't want more of that. It'll be meted to you. But this one, we're looking for the extra. So what does that mean? The extra as far as like more understanding, more hearing, more perceiving. Yeah. Is, that, is that what you mean? Hmm. I'm, I'm not sure that I would go that route. Maybe I don't understand what you're saying. I think that Jesus is saying, pay attention to what you hear. Okay, maybe I understand what you're saying. Pay attention to what you hear. Because the more that you receive, the more accountable you are for it. Is that kind of what you're getting at? No, the more you're going to get, the more you pay attention to God's word, the more you do it, the more he's going to give you, the more that knowledge you're going to have, the more obedience you're going to have, the more he's just going to keep pressing it in. It's kind of like the whole giving thing, you know, that people like to say, test them in this, give, and he'll press it over. And more, you, you endeavor to, to listen to God, he's going to keep, he's going to overwhelm you. That stuff. That's, I mean, I understand the other passage. You want to be careful about and be gracious because yep. you want to bring more judgment on yourself from this one. This is a good thing. Get it. Get more. Yeah, that's good. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That makes sense. So, like, the amount of effort you put into it, Just that's the kind of reaping that you should expect in response. That's good. I like that. I had not thought of it from that perspective, but I like that. I think that's right on. Um, 
Man, which, yeah, even more so. I mean, it, it is tragic. The, the kind of, um, like, statistical research that's done about professing Christians and their biblical literacy, you know. And by professing Christians, we're just taking them at their profession of faith. But when you begin to ask questions, you realize many of them are not actually believers. But, um, but it's kind of astounding. Um, Satan's about to have a baby, and I know the first thing it's going to do is be looking for that breast, and because it's hungry. And this is the analogy scripture uses about crave the, the, the word, like a newborn and, and its milk, like, and because you want to grow and you want to be strong in that high kind of Yeah. Also, to letting your light shine, you know, God wants to be glorified through you, and He, he wants to hide you if you're a, you know, displaying. You're claiming him, but you're displaying horrible things. He don't want you out and about. Right. Because you're bringing shame upon the name of Christ. Yeah. But if you are glorifying his name, he'll shine you bright and give you more and yeah. make his name famous. Certainly one of the most like telltale signs that somebody has actually become a believer is their hunger for the word. Um, that's a pretty good sign. The second part of that. That, that uh, I mean, this says take care to what you listen to, right? I know I agree with what you guys are saying, that, that, but the second part of that where it's saying, um, so, so someone who has more and more will be given, and those who have little, some will be, shall be taken from him, right? So what's, that's the part, we explain the second part of that, a, a part of the, you know, what you're talking about here. So. Yeah, well, the little, the little wisdom, the little knowledge that you have is going to be taken from you. Um, it's kind of like the parable of the sword in the first part, though. They received it for a moment, but they really didn't do anything with it, and then it's gone. It's taken away. Yeah. Which is awesome because uh, did anybody ever read the book The Phantom Tollbooth? This is a weird connection, but in The Phantom Tollbooth, this boy takes this journey to this very weird land, and um, he ends up in this place where, like, he can eat food that actually makes him more hungry versus, like, food that satisfies. It's like in this math land that he ends up in. Anyway, it, it makes me think of, of the word because I found that the more you consume it, you don't really get to this place where you're like, I think I've had enough. I'm full. It's like the more you consume it, the more you're like, wow, this is really fascinating. There's more here, and I'd like to learn more about this, and I'd like to share this, and... I'd like to go further into this. Um, but you do get satisfied in a way. Yeah, like, right? Yeah, when I get out, I think of the world and all the stuff it has to offer. Like, people just can't get enough, but it's fleeting and endless. Yeah. And I think that maybe the imagery, the way to describe the difference is like, the world has this receptacle, a cup, if you will, with a big hole in the bottom. They're just pouring stuff into it, and it's just flowing right out. Whereas the Christian has this receptacle, this cup that is, it's, it's, it's sound, right? It's, it's an actual vessel that can hold the water. And, and you fill it up, and then it gets bigger, right? And you keep filling it up, and it gets bigger. Yeah, sure, or it runs over. But I think, like, you, you, you get full, and then you realize, wow, the capacity has grown for even more of this. And you want to eat again. Yes. When you're hungry. Yeah. Well, because even when the cup runs over, like, it's still full. Mm. Yeah, right. But we get hungry a lot, and... Uh, People that aren't are sick or whatever don't get hungry. But, you know, you're not hungry multiple times throughout the day. Something's wrong with you. That is true. That's another really good point. Yeah, if you're not hungry, 
your doctor would diagnose you with some kind of <laughs> illness, right? That's a good, really good point. It's fascinating. The deep, the deeper and deeper, the more, the more you realize there's the bottom. It just continues to be deeper in the word. I mean, you, you go, wow, you know, it just, you're, I've been blown away that there's more there. There's more there. Every time you look at it, there's, God's revealing more. Yeah. It's like, how, how is that even possible? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And this is that imagery from like Psalms and Isaiah, maybe where it's like talking about when they are going to drink, you know, make them drink like the judgment, like so, you know, over. Their with Drain it down to the dregs. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That is a terrifying thought. Um, just one other thing that's maybe a little bit silly, but verse 25, you know, our, our, our mainstream culture is infected with this idea of like the Marxist power dynamic um, that... You know, the, the oppressed need to overthrow the powerful to, to seize the power from them. And uh, a lot of times, actually, the Bible is cited in support of this. You have the whole liberation theology idea that's kind of a mix of Marxism and Latin American Catholicism that then became adopted by the, the African American civil rights movement and, um, and in fact, it's quite the opposite. This God has no problem adding to those who already have and taking away from those who have not. Um, because he just, he just the, the, the normal dynamics of the way humans think about the world is not how he operates at all. To the one who is blessed to know the truth of the gospel, more blessing will come to him. And to the one who is cursed to not understand these things, even greater curses will come to him. All right, parable of the seed growing. Let's move on to verse 26. And Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. So when we're reading parables or like biblical imagery, we have to think carefully because there can be this temptation to be like, oh yeah, I know this one, the seed and the sower and... But Jesus is using the same imagery here to illustrate a totally different point. Um, and I think, I can't remember exactly where it is, but either Jesus or Paul does something quite similar where, like, within a couple of verses, he's switching. Uh, you know what? I think it's where he's talking about the, the, the kingdom of God and wine. Like, at one point he's talking about how new wine is good, and then at another point he's talking about how old wine is good. I don't remember off the well, top no, of my head. I know Mark does like a Mark and Sandwich where he begins, he starts telling a story, and then he loops in another story and then wraps up yeah. the original one to make the, the sense. Right. And, right. and so that is, I don't know if that's here. The point is we should be looking at each of these things kind of independently to understand like, okay, what's actually being said here, okay? So Jesus uses the same illustration of a sower and a seed, uh, but he's using it for a different purpose. 
So that's where like the idea of context matters. I don't think that the prior parable is really meant to influence the way that we read these verses. That parable, the parable of the sower, was about the nature of the soil that receives the seed. This parable seems to be more about the nature of the seed itself. And I think that's an important distinction. The idea here is that the seed the farmer sows does not grow by the effort of the farmer. It grows because of the nature of the seed. Because I remember when we, when I, mean, I grew up in a farm, my my father was will like select the beautiful, you know, um, healthy seed and separate it for the next for the next um, planting. Wow, interesting! I never thought about that. Yeah, yeah, and then, and he will say, okay, this sacks of rice, don't touch it because that's a good seed that we're going to to plant the next the next season. Wow. Yeah, so if you will select the good and healthy seeds. I would never have thought of that. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> there's some really like mysterious power at work here in the... Like resting inside of a seed is some latent, God-ordained, hmm. mysterious, but also genetic reality that when it gets soil and water, it grows. Um, for Christmas, we gave my son Soren a little um, uh, bonsai tree plant, uh, like craft thing. And I didn't realize that bonsai, uh, there's no such thing as like a bonsai tree. It's like an actual tree, but the way you trim it and take care of it gives it this miniature look to it, right. which who knew? But they planted these seeds and it took like eight weeks and they were watering it twice a day, every day, and then all of a sudden, like, up pops this little teeny, like, sprout. And it's incredible that this is just latent in the seed. Um, you know, and even with our, like, hyper-modern scientific view of the world, we, we understand what causes a seed to grow. We understand soil, water, eventually sunlight, but we don't understand why a seed grows. I think that that's kind of fascinating. Like, we can understand the scientific mechanics of it, but not the metaphysical nature of it. Okay? So, um, let's talk a little bit more about this for a second, because I, I do think this is actually kind of important. Um, it's kind of similar to how we understand the neurological workings of the brain, but we don't understand scientifically the nature of the soul or the mind. Right? A materialist will say, well, why do you feel love? Why do you think what you think? Well, it's these neurons in your brain and electrical impulses and chemicals. And, but none of that is a satisfactory explanation for why this particular woman has captured my heart and I feel inclined to like, you know, pursue that, give myself over to that. Um, so... This is also, I think we're talking about, because if we're going to talk about some worldview stuff for a moment, traditionally, science was relegated to the realm of the objective, quantifiable material, physics, okay, the physical, whereas you had religion and philosophy seeking to understand the subjective, the numinous, the immaterial, the metaphysics, the things that are higher than, above physics. Sadly, today we've abandoned that distinction almost entirely, 
and now we just have science. And science is, if you listen to the way scientific people talk, it is metaphysical. It is religious in nature. Yeah. Um, and yet, in a very simple parable, Jesus can say, you don't understand these things. Um, this, I think, relates to John chapter 3. But to think about it, you know, the science people, they called it the, the you know, the, all these intelligent, brilliant scientists. To think about it, the knowledge they have is from God. It is. Yeah, and this is one of the funny things about all of this is it was the Christian perspective that God is a God of order and not a God of chaos that gave birth to the Enlightenment that said we can actually understand this world by applying this process of discovery. Yeah. Um, they just discover it, but God gives them the, the you know. Yeah, the, 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 the realities of truth and order and goodness, these things all influenced the Western worldview that we can understand the world. Um, yeah, and now that's come back to like cannibalize itself, interestingly. Um, there was something else I was gonna say about this. Oh, I just had this idea, this, this, you know, have you ever noticed that if, like I remember back when Obama was president and they were working on the Affordable Care Act. Do you remember this? There was like a, this picture of him with all these doctors and what are they all wearing? They're wearing like lab coats, right? Mm -hmm. It's like the, the um, the religious robes of, of the religious, of, of the priests of the day, right? Or if there's gonna be some scientist, they'll put them in the lab coat because it's their priestly vestments to help our world understand like this is a religiously accepted view, right? Listen to the science. Yeah, listen to the science. Uh, but this makes me think of John 3. Jesus answered when he's talking to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Right? We, we did learn that the seed is the gospel. And I think that that application, I think that that idea is still present in this little section. And that this thing that is sown grows not by a work of man, but by a work of God. So it's talking about the kingdom of God here specifically, right? Because it says the kingdom yeah. of God is like, right? It's like a man. So I know in other places it talks about God does do what? God does the growing, right? And it's like you're mentioning. But is this this is specifically talking about the kingdom of God and how it grows? Is that is yeah. where it is? Yeah, I think so. You know, as opposed to like the kingdom of man grows like this. There's a revolution and you overthrow the current government and you set up a new administration and you raise taxes, right? Like that's not how this kingdom operates. Because when you planted a really healthy seed. It multiplies a lot when during the harvest. Yeah. I mean, your your plants is also, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you harvest more. 
Yeah, absolutely, which is why, you know, these uh, agriculture conglomerates are always trying to, like, improve the, the seed genetics to produce bigger crops. But even with all of that, they still don't understand that the metaphysical nature of what causes a seed to grow. So the point here is that the kingdom of God is just not a, it's not a thing of man. It's something different. Uh, so what about verse 29, when the grain is ripe, but once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come? I don't think that this is hinting at some end times thing. I think, I think Jesus is just saying there's a time for sowing and the kingdom of God is growing and there will come a day when that, that season ends and the next season begins. Um, but I think, you know, and man knows his place in those different seasons. But, but Revelation 14 does talk about an angel that uses a sickle to reap the harvest. So maybe there's some connection there. I don't know. Anybody want to take a position on that one way or the other? I, I love just imagine this is because when we harvest the rice, we then the, the root is like, and then we just pick up the with the seeds and, and the rice. And I don't know. It's working in my mind like differently. <laughs> I just don't know whether I, I. I guess I. I don't think that Jesus is like hinting at a connection to Revelation here, but yeah, I'm, I'm willing to be wrong, but I think it's more like. Show you come into the kingdom of God, and now you're captured. Like, you know, the reaping part. Yeah, the reaping where he puts the sickle in means like now you're in the kingdom of God. Because um, it's really kind of the kingdom of God is like this. So the seed's been scattered. We were all not in the kingdom of God. The seed was scattered in our around. It took root in our hearts, and as soon as it did and stuck, we were captured, and now we're in the kingdom of God. Got it. Now we're still there. But I mean, I, I can see it being. Yeah. There's times for everything. <laughs> yes. There is time for everything. Yes. I, I think a really important application of this teaching here is that we should be careful how our man-made efforts might remove the mystery from the kingdom of God. And so what I mean by that is you know, things like, we're going to go do street evangelism, we meet this guy, let me tell you about Jesus, pray this prayer, and now you're in the kingdom of God, right? Um, I just don't think that it's that formulaic. I, I don't think that we even have that kind of power or authority. Or even, I mean, over the years as a pastor, I've read lots of books on, like, church growth. Put these principles in place and your church will grow. <laughs> well, yeah, that's probably true, but... Is the kingdom of God growing? No, not necessarily, right? You can do all the trappings that cause people to attend your church, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the kingdom of God is growing like that because this is not, this is not something that is natural, supernatural. Another thing that's dangerous I see commentators do is take the, the law of first, first use or something, right? And they say, well, the birds were evil in the sower passage. And later when we get to say that the birds come and nest in the, in the mustard tree, well, those are wicked people in the church because birds are evil. That's right. like it's a whole different parable. And it's a whole different yeah. Thing. 
and I wasn't going to go down the road, but maybe we should for a moment because it is worth talking about, I think. It, it seems so obvious to me that it's like we shouldn't have to visit this, but we probably should. There are some people who, that's what they do. They read the parables or they read scripture with this idea of like the first use principle, which means that when the Bible uses this imagery in this place, then it's intending for it to be used consistently in that same way. But that's not, the context is the better way to read it. That's sometimes true, but not always true. The best example of this is you've got the snake in the garden, and then Jesus says that I'll be lifted up, you know, and he uses the snake imagery there as well. So is, is G, if you use that first principle uh, application there, then Jesus is equating himself to Satan, basically. Like, so you don't want to go that route. <laughs> so that is an important thing, right? Didn't to, me up early on. Early on. Yeah. Uh, I think the, the the better approach is let's look at this context contextually. When I say it messed me up, it messed me up because I listen to the people that are more educated and well read and have their lab coats on and, <laughs> <laughs> and they tell me what it said and I was like, you know, then I started reading some other people that said differently and then okay. I mean I actually think for myself. Yes, it's true. I support the use of like commentaries and things like that, but only after you've already done your own work with the text. Um, and these days it's like, we're so tempted to not go to the text because we can Google it and we can find a blog or we can find a podcast. And yeah, and it creates this kind of like codependent laziness. Um, we're blessed to have the word, let's let's start there. Or just like what Paul is saying, be like a Berean. Yeah. You have to search the Bible right. if it's in the Bible. Yeah. Whatever somebody is saying. Totally. Yeah. I love that that parable that or the proverb that says like a man thinks he's right in his own eyes till his neighbor comes and tests him. And to me, that's where all of my changes have happened. Is I'll just be talking about something and somebody goes, "I don't." They challenge me, and that's how I, you know, became more to to the you know the sovereignty of God yeah. and my salvation and all that stuff. Is like challenged me and then I'm like I don't, I don't know I've all these people say this and then you don't you just can't sit well until you go back to scripture yeah and see for yourself like a brand yeah and it is interesting how people respond to that because a lot of people are like I don't want to be challenged and so they run away yeah. right yeah you know they, they get very defensive about their their pet theological ideas which is interesting I know I've said this before my dad says we all have heresy that's not the question. The question is, what do you do with it when it's exposed? Do you mine it and then discern whether it's correct or wrong and then repent of it and change? Or do you just choose to continue to live with it? This is why I, I fear for so many people that are in the ministry that have written so many books and have decades of faithful ministry and are good for the most part, but they're wrong about some things. Well, they'd have to go back and recant so much stuff and it'd be such a detriment to the name that they might just be like, you know what, I'll just, just leave I'll it. just hold it. Yeah. I always think that with John MacArthur and eschatology, because I love that, you know, that game, but it's just so wrong what he's saying about eschatology. Like, just recant, man. But I don't, I don't see him doing that, because he's got multiple <laughs> books on the subject. Right. He's stuck. He's stuck in his ways now. I, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Augustine whose last book was called like Refutations or something like that. And he went back through all of his works and just refuted all of his wrong positions that he had held prior, which is pretty awesome. pretty rad. I, I, I feel worried about this when I preach because like I'm convinced of the 
position that I'm teaching on, and yet, well, most of the time. And then, but I realize, like, I'm not perfect, so inevitably along the way here, I'm making mistakes. And so recording it for all And recording it, right? <laughs> and hopefully, hopefully whatever I'm giving you that's wrong, you are going home and you're like, oh, let's look more closely at that. No, no, Grady's a nice guy, but he's definitely wrong here. So we're not going to accept that. But man, I, yeah. And that's why the Bible says that those who teach, you know, you should be... Should be eager to take that responsibility. I'm curious on. that if you, you you went to started a sermon saying, "Hey, I want to I want to go back and tell you I changed my opinion. I changed my mind. What that would do to the people who were in in you know yeah they would say, well how would they take that? Well, this is somebody you told me and you taught this you yeah. know as a young believer you know somebody and I would be happy to do that. I'm just I'm not as uh, hardworking as Augustine to go back through right. all the sermons and all <laughs> to actually like no, look through it. But then um, it becomes a fault of people that go, oh, since he was wrong about this one thing, he's probably yeah, he must be wrong about, about right. That's not right, right. either. Right. It's like, and, or, or if somebody comes to me and they're like, well, you, you shouldn't read that book because this guy's wrong at that point, I'm like, well, you should probably leave my church then because like, I'm going to be wrong on one of these things. <laughs> yeah. We will give you grace. All right. I appreciate that. I need a lot of Jesus it. Jesus gave us grace. I, 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 I do need a lot of that. Um, all right, so you cannot naturally force people into the kingdom of God any more than you can force a seed to grow. Mm -hmm. It's a supernatural work of God, not man. Um, you know, and, and God is sowing this kingdom. He doesn't really need us to do that work. Um, I think we play a part in it, but we, we should be careful not to mix up how this work is accomplished. It's accomplished through Christ. It's accomplished through the Spirit. Um, all right, parable of the mustard seed. Um, and Jesus said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Um, it seems just at this point that Mark has chosen to topically arrange the te teachings of Jesus here. I mean, it's not really possible for us to know whether Jesus, like, Mark shows us this kind of in one scene, but it's not really possible for us to know whether it unfolded in that way in reality. Mark has chosen to arrange it that way, though. Matthew actually chooses to insert the parable of the weeds after the parable of the sower. Mark doesn't record the parable of the weeds at all. Um, that's in Matthew 13. Luke actually chooses to spread these parables of the seeds out throughout his gospel. He's got it from Luke 8, Luke 13, Luke 17, and then Luke makes no mention of the parable of the weeds. So the point I'm trying to make is, you know, the gospels are telling essentially the same story, but they're doing it from different perspectives. They're doing it with, with a different, maybe, literary approach, which is all fine. None of that should shake your faith. Um, they, they don't, at any point, claim to say, 
And this is exactly how these events transpired in chronological order. That's, that's not necessarily the goal. And then you've got John, which with, this is why we call them the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They give us a synopsis, whereas John is totally different. He's got a much more like metaphysical approach to the way that he structures his gospel. John doesn't record any parables of seeds or reeds at all. Um, so I just think that that's kind of interesting. Anybody else have thoughts on any of that? Okay. Uh, the kingdom of God cannot be measured by appearances. I think in some ways Jesus is saying don't judge a book by its cover. Right? This thing that looks very small and insignificant from maybe a earthly perspective or from the perspective of man um, is actually a thing with incredible, almost limitless potential. Potential to grow in the garden and take the place of prominence and provide shade and be robust enough that the birds can land in its branches and nothing in the garden is even comparable in its stature. So compare the physical power of Christians and churches to other things. And I think we begin to kind of get an idea of, of this concept. I mean, I mean, look at Maricopa Springs. Like, we don't have much money. We meet in a building that's not ours. Most people in Maricopa don't know we're here. We certainly are not a blip on the radar screen for anybody who's got power or prominence. No politician knows where we are. No wealthy business person cares. Like, we're just this little group of people here in Maricopa. We're, we're very insignificant. Compared to, like, Silicon Valley, the tech industry, I mean, they are influencing the world through phones and advertising. You've got the might of armies. Churches don't own armies. As far as I know, there's no military uprising that begins with the church. You've got the power of Wall Street that moves money and financial markets all around the world. The church is incomparable to that, at least in the eyes of man. You've got the influence of the internet. I mean, and the church is woven in these things, right? There are businessmen that are Christians on Wall Street, and there are blogs on the internet that talk about the gospel. But the kingdom of God is this thing that when you compare it to what the rest of the world has, it's like a little mustard seed that seems incredibly powerless and insignificant. And yet, maybe a good example of this is the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese Communist Party, the, the, one of the things that it is most fearful of is Christianity. Like, I don't think the Chinese Communist Party is fearful of America. I don't think that it's fearful of the United Nations. But it bulldozes its little churches like Maricopa Springs um, because it understands that whatever this thing, like it obviously doesn't believe, but it, it understands that whatever this thing is that is Christianity, it captivates people's hearts and it changes things. And, and for all their efforts to stamp it out, they can't, right? I mean, they will probably, the Chinese Communist Party will probably succeed in the genocide of Uyghurs meaning the Uyghur population will probably come to an end because of the Chinese Communist Party stamping down that, that worldview. And yet, for all their efforts, they can't do it to Christianity. The so, more they go to, the, after the Christians in, in China, 
the, the, the more it's growing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, just like just like in Iran, um, I have a, when, when I was in KL, there's a lot of Iranians, people that become a born-again Christian, and they cannot go back to Iran because they will be hunted in yeah. the airport, just in the airport, if they find out that they become a Christian. Yeah, crazy, isn't it? So, yeah, but the more the, the, the government suppress them, the, the, the bigger become yeah. the... Yeah. The, the church is like underground church. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's a really amazing. Which this may be a silly thing to say, which I, but I think that um, if I can put it in these terms, maybe one of the best tricks the devil ever played was the conversion of Constantine. Because it turned Christianity from a counterculture in the Roman world into you know, a thing that was in bed with politics and power and fame and glory. I, and I'm saying, I don't know whether Constantine was actually converted or not. I'm not trying to make a statement about that. I'm just saying that, that one of the best ways to snuff out Christianity is to make it popular. Because then you bring these people in who aren't actually converted and they water the whole thing down, right? Um, versus like when you try and suppress it, it just keeps sprouting up. So the kingdom of God appears small in comparison to maybe the other things present in the garden, but the latent potential of the seed is expansive. It's larger than all the other garden plants, and it gives this restful shade. It's more, it's robust enough that these birds can nest in it. Um, and not just sit in it, nest in its shade, right? A nest is like a whole other level of taxation on a branch. Um, we got to wrap up there, but we didn't. We'll we'll um, pick up, I guess, in verse thirty-three. Does anybody want to say anything else about the parable of the mustard seed? I've had people ask, say, "Well, this is another place where the Bible's wrong because there's smaller seeds in the mustard seed." I'm just this just comes to mind, right? This is the arguments that well, they make statements that this is the littlest, so this is the biggest, and you know, and I think it's just the example yeah. that he's using to try to. Anyway, that was the only yeah, thing. Yeah, and I, maybe a response to that would be, um, isn't it interesting that even with your snarky fact, you can't stamp out the growth of the mustard seed into the tree, right? right? Why is that? Because that's what the kingdom of God is like. Or that you said the Bible always used as or something like, and used hyperbole even in your example. <laughs> right, that's an excellent point as well. Well, let me pray. God, we thank you that we get to belong to this kingdom and... We thank you that you've given us eyes to see and ears to hear, and um, we probably only understand a fraction of what this all actually means. I mean, you're, you're gracious to give us understanding, and yet the kingdom of God is um, beyond our, our comprehension in this life. And we thank you that this mustard seed is growing and will continue to grow. We thank you for the shade that it provides. We thank you for the safe branches it gives us to rest in. And um, we thank you that this is entirely a work of God for the glory of Christ and not that man might boast. Um, and we thank you that whatever happens in the world, the, the latent power of this seed is unstoppable. Um, and yeah, we just are in awe that we get to be part of it. 
And I pray that our lives would be worthy of it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.